Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. We're always happy to welcome two outstanding scholars to the Film Comment podcast, and you've probably already read their criticism or heard them on a DVD or streaming commentary. David Bordwell last joined us to discuss his book, Reinventing Hollywood, and of course, Bordwell's books are staples of film studies courses, and his regular film blog with Kristen Thompson is a sharp and inquisitive resource. Critic Imogen Sarah Smith is our other returning guest, a regular contributor to Film Comment and an all-star contributor at Criterion and elsewhere. Among her beautifully composed and observed essays, she's written about Christian Petzold for us and on the podcast reflected on the phenomenon of ghosts in cinema. We're pleased to welcome David and Imogen back for a discussion that ranges from fascinating discoveries in Japanese cinema to the inflammatory film The Hunt. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, my name is Nick Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is another in our daily edition of the Film Comment Podcast at home. We've been doing the podcast remotely, as you might guess, since we're all indoors. Uh, the upside being that we can finally reach out and bug all the people we've wanted to talk to who have perhaps less choice to uh, not do the podcast than they did before. <laughs> um, but just, you know, uh, it's also just great to talk about movies, take our minds off things, um, and also think about how we might be thinking and seeing things, thinking about and seeing things differently now. So for this episode, I'm, I'm very pleased to be joined by, by two guests. Um, uh, we'll, we'll let them, each of them introduce themselves. Um, first, uh, coming to us from, uh, wh- where are you now, David? Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so if you could just introduce yourself. Uh... Sure. My name's David Bordwell. Uh, I've been a film professor uh, since the early 70s. I uh, study the history and aesthetics of film, teach courses in same. I've been retired for a while, but this term I'm back doing a, a one-off seminar uh, at the university. Well, well welcome. Um, I, I think the last time you were on the podcast uh, was actually with, with our se- second guest, if I recall correctly, and that is... Imogen Sarah Smith. I'm a writer. I write for Film Comment, where I've been doing the Phantom Light column and uh, other places like the Criterion Collection. And I'm in New York City. Um, I'm in Queens, staying home, writing, watching movies. But it's great to be talking with both of you. Yeah, it's it is it is great to be talking with you as well. And I mean, it's it's it seems like a um, you know maybe a, a small thing to be doing, just talking about the movies. But uh, people keep telling us that to keep going. Uh, some of the tweets sound um, a little desperate at times. <laughs> like, like I have the duty. Well, I'm kidding. You know, they're they're very sweet. One of them was saying. I listen to your podcast every day before I go to sleep. And I was like, oh, that's because, you know, we teachers have that saying that uh, we're the only people who talk in other people's sleep. 
So it's a good <laughs> idea for her to use this as a kind of an aid to get the dream. We'll, right. we'll, we'll do our best to be soporific. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It, it kind of lowers the lowers the bar. <laughs> um, well, I, I I thought we'd I'd just start off by asking each of you, you know, how how you're doing, or you know, where, where your head's at right right now. Um, obviously, it's it's kind of a stressful time, but um, I guess each of you in, in in different ways can continue at least doing doing the work you're doing just in a, in a different way now. I am continuing. Actually, I have always worked from home, at least for a number of years now. So in that regard, uh, no radical change for me. Um, but obviously the, the increased isolation does make for a big change, especially living in New York City. I live in Queens. I haven't been to Manhattan in about a month now. And I can sort of see it off on the horizon from my window, <laughs> but I can't go there. And it's very strange. And of course, I know the city is basically in hibernation at the moment in terms of, of culture and film and art and all of the things that usually give it so much life and vibrancy. And so it's kind of a strange time. I, I feel like there's just been this kind of kaleidoscope of different emotions every day between sort of dealing with, with the anxiety, with the tedium, with the sadness and the recognition of all the, the um, you know, tough times that people are going through and tough decisions people are having to make combined with sort of my own gratitude for the degrees to which I am lucky um, in my life and lucky to be healthy and have my loved ones be healthy and lucky to keep doing the work that I do and that I love. And, you know, so it's sort of all of these emotions I find tend to, to cycle through each day uh, at different times between kind of having this focus on the things that I appreciate and then having, having the moments of really um, experiencing a lot of anxiety or, just a kind of sense of, of somberness in life right now. But, um, you know, it, it has been, and I think this is true, I'm sure for a lot of people, um, I've ironically wound up being in, in closer touch and more connected with people perhaps than even is, is usual because, you know, we're all stuck at home and we're all, you know, doing our virtual happy hours and, and remote podcasts. And, um, you know, it's been, really, um, you know, it just really makes us all aware of how much we do need this kind of time to talk to each other. Yeah, no, it's all the things that we, we kind of bemoan are, are, are kind of eroding away at, 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 the, at social, actual society are all these tools are now sort of vital ways to maintain mm -hmm. some semblance of staying connected. It's kind of interesting. And, and David, you're, you said you're, you're in Madison, Wisconsin, right? How, how are things, um, how are things for you there? Well, uh, don't get me started on our politics. It's gone crazy, <laughs> oh. you know, but uh, generally I've been retired about 15 years. And so uh, I was living a kind of a weirdly sedentary life anyhow, because I was working a lot at home, but also going into the library, uh, going into my office where I have a flatbed editor where I sometimes watch films on film, and then also going to our Cinematheque, which was a weekly event with lots of really, really interesting, valuable films, uh, both old and recent. And then, unfortunately, the 
the pandemic has canceled our film festival, which was a big event for us as well, mm. our annual film festival, which brings filmmakers and films from, you know, the Indie sphere, but also from European venues. And that's been a big blow to us because it's a very important event. Um, otherwise, um, I, you know, I've been staying, like you mentioned, I've pretty much stayed home. Um, Kristen, my wife, has gone out hunting and gathering for foods and medicine. I'm kind of at risk for this. I'm in a target population. I'm over 70. I have uh, chronic lung problems. I'm being treated for a lung problem now. So my uh, pulmonary doctor has told me to, you know, stay home completely. Normally, we oscillate between sort of being anchored in Madison and with a few trips in the States to uh, foreign trips. We go to Bologna, and Imogen, I know, has been there a couple times, too, as well as well, we go to Venice when we can. We go to Vancouver. We go to some of the festivals, and that doesn't look very likely on the horizon at the moment for various reasons. So uh, we've you know, been sedentary maybe half our time and traveling half our time, and now it's, it's all sedentary. But I have to say, you know, when I can compartmentalize and not think about all those things that Imogen surveyed, but how lucky I am to be in this privileged position. Um, I, uh, you know, when I'm not thinking about that, I'm compartmentalizing too and trying to get, get work done. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems like a, uh, yeah, a, a necessary thing for, for, for all of us just to be able to take a step back and, and, and focus on some of the things that we, the things that are in our, in our control that, that we can, mm. can do. Um, but yeah, that's, I'm also glad to hear that you are, <laughs> that you are staying in, indoors and, and resisting the, the temptation <laughs> to, well, to go out. Walk, but otherwise, yeah, I'm pretty much indoors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I was wondering, you know, part, part of, uh, part of, um, what led me to, to, to reach out, um, was just, uh, David, I read, uh, you know, a recent post you made about things you've been watching, mm. um, which which also ended with, I, I have to say, a very welcome, just like, and by the way, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, the reason why we're in this situation or one overriding reason why things are precisely the way they are now. Um, and I thought that was just an interesting way of uh, reality um, of, of current events, rather, um, being kind of mingled with with, with criticism there as, as a backdrop that one can't really ignore. Right, right. Well, I, I since uh, Trump was elected, I've over the years I've been putting up some blogs about politics, but trying to fit them into my research framework. So that for every presidential campaign, I wrote a blog about sort of this notion of the narrative, since that's become jargon in journalism and public discourse anyway, about how we conceive of a narrative when the arena is politics. So I did one uh, for both of the Obama campaigns for presidency, and I did one, I couldn't bear to do one actually on the campaigns of Clinton and, and Trump, but I did do one right after the inauguration because Kristen and I were in Washington, so we went on the Women's March, but also I wrote a kind of general political thing. And about once every six months, I, I rant uh, on political matters, but I, I was preparing, in fact, this summer, a, a blog about the Republican idea of narrative. And uh, so I read a lot of those books by Comey and McCabe and these other people, and I, I just sort of despaired about it. So I didn't write it. But now, every now and then, during the Trump regime, I've been writing one-off one things, um, political essays, I guess you'd call them. Um, and, I, you know, that little codicil that you mentioned to my last one was just my effort to stick my oar in again. I've got yeah. some other ideas, but mainly I, I think right now things are changing so quickly, and it's such a crisis 
that I would uh, probably be carried off by the guys in white coats if I really said what I thought. So I think I'm going <laughs> for a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious for each of you, what's, you know, it's almost impossible to watch uh, movies now and not have the, the outside world intrude a little. Um, I think that I, I maybe like, like me, you have sort of mixed feelings about that. Like in some ways I watch something now and it has a different sort of urgency or a different kind of context to it. Um, that might be because um, I, I was, as I just was talking about yesterday, I, I, this weekend, I happened to watch two movies about mass catastrophes of oh, uh, fail safe and the day after uh, was my uh, mm. were two of them. Um, but I had been somewhat drawn to them for some reason but um, but also it's not entirely welcome because you do want to be able to watch something and not necessarily have it be um, by frame by the outside world it's almost like it's become a more intense version of, of um, I mean certain debates about criticism, how much it should be um, engaged with or framed by um, the, the world at large, um, whether there, you can even say there is a dividing line um, or, or not. Well, failsafe was an interesting choice because I've always kind of thought, I'd I like to hear what Imogen has to say, I've always thought it was an underrated film. I mean, it's very histrionic and really over the top, but in kind of a good way. And at the time when they came out, I saw both of them more or less as they came out. I wasn't a fan of Strange Love. I thought it was kind of sophomoric um, and even a little sort of ripoff of Mad Magazine. Uh, but I did think Failsafe was a pretty powerful movie in that American hysterical mode. Uh, and I, I've gone back to it several times. And for instance, I think Henry Fonda's performance in that film is absolutely stupendous. And uh, Larry Hagman and many of the others as well. I think it's a film that wasn't fairly treated at the time, partly because there was a kind of dislike of Lumet in general for certain among certain quarters, um, New York critics especially, yeah. but also because it is so over the top. Uh, in a way, it, it, it seems like a self-parody in itself, but actually I think it's a rather powerful movie and um, very bleak, of course. So I, I think it's interesting that you picked that because it's kind of one of my, my secret favorites uh, in that you know doomsday genre. To you, your um, your larger question, Nick. I mean, it is interesting that there's there's sort of these extremes of the way people are talking about movie watching now between the kind of focus on people wanting comfort movies, you know, and and this idea of using movies um, as an escape, and then people being drawn to sort of the most the most relevant to this situation or the most kind of um, movies about catastrophe or about contagion or about, um, you know, these sort of bleak situations, which, you know, are either, I don't know, helping people to process what we're going through or making them putting things in perspective. I don't know, but I mean, it's, it seems like there's, they've sort of been the two extremes of what people are maybe looking for um, in movies right now. And I've, I've seen myself do that a little bit. I've been on a big, uh, kick for about a month now of um, watching a lot of classic Japanese cinema, uh, mainly on the Criterion channel, which has an extraordinary wealth of Japanese films, you know, going back to the silent era and um, ranging from the kind of big, big classics to some very, um, you know, much more obscure and previously difficult to see films. And um, for a while, for a piece I was writing, I was watching all of these post-war movies, um, you know, some of which depict 
Japan in that immediate post-war moment. Um, things like Women of the Night uh, by Mizuguchi and, um, you know, uh, some of the Kurosawa's Stray Dog and and Drunken Angel and Black River by Kobayashi and all these films that just are depicting this society in the most traumatic moment. Um, and many of them using uh, disease and, and sickness as this kind of metaphor for, for the society, um, you know, for, for this, this kind of social malaise um, and just the, the society, the, the, the ruins, the physical ruins, the kind of, of um, moral and emotional ruins that people are living in. Um, and I was, I was finding, you know, those very, you know, I was very drawn into them, but also at a certain moment felt like I kind of needed uh, to step back from, from the bleakness. And then, um, and then I was watching some other uh, Japanese films that I found really were, uh, were what I was, was wanting and needing because they had a quality of, of humanism and this kind of tender focus on everyday life and everyday people. Um, I started watching a lot of um, Hiroshi Shimizu films, um, which are from the mid, early to mid thirties, um, sort of late silent and early sound films that I just have really fallen in love with. Um, and some Kinoshita films from the forties and fifties that again, you know, I don't know that, um, that kind of humanism, I think is for me, what I am looking for right now. Was there, was there, could you talk about, uh, one of, one of those, the, the ones sure. Shimizu um, or Kinoshita? Sure. I'd love to. The, my favorite of the Shimizu films is called Japanese girls at the Harbor. Um, which I just was completely blown away by when I saw it. It's from 1933, um, but it's a silent film. You know, Japan continued making silent films long after most other countries had moved into sound completely. Um, and it's it's a it's a waterfront fallen woman saga, which is one of my favorite subgenres of cinema. Um, it's set in Yokohama and. It it has a it has a, a bit of a noir component to the, the to the plot um, as this woman sort of um, you know in this reckless moment kind of changes her life and then becomes a sort of drifting dance hall girl. But it's stylistically just extraordinary the things that he's doing with jump cuts and dissolves and traveling shots and things that just don't look like anything anybody else was doing. Um, but I love the way that the, the, the stylistic things he's doing always feel spontaneous and, and sort of playful and natural. And they never take away from the fact that his focus is always on the characters and on the story. Um, another one that I watched recently is called Mr. Thank You. And it's about a a bus driver who drives this route through a sort of rural mountainous region of Japan. And it's just basically the, the bus trip and all of the different people who are on the bus. And there's, you know, sort of comedy and bits of drama and all of these sort of traveling shots and just this wonderful kind of 
fluidity and movement. I mean, that was very appealing to me, especially in our in our kind of new sedentary life, just this feeling of, of movement and of air and then this kind of, um, you know, lovely focus on just people going about their ordinary lives. Um, Kinoshita, I really liked the film Wedding Ring, which is included in the um, Toshiro Mifune centenary series that the Criterion Channel is running right now. His uh, 100th birthday was April 1st. So they've got a big selection of his films up. And that was the one that was really the discovery for me. It's from 1950. So it's the same year that he made Rashomon. And it's like everything about it and his performance and the style of the film is completely different. It's a sort of uh, basically, you know, comparable to a kind of of woman's picture melodrama. Um, It stars Kinyo Tanaka and Mifune plays a doctor who falls in love with the wife of this patient that he's treating. Um, but it's, it's, it's a kind of modest, small scale, yet kind of quietly very progressive movie in the way that it depicts the, the woman, the way it depicts their relationship. And it also is all shot sort of on location. Um, so it has a bit of a neorealist feeling to it. And I was just really struck by it um, because I, had never, I had never heard of it before, I'll be honest. And um, Kinoshita seems interesting um, in that every film I've seen by him so far was totally different from every other one. Like he seemed to develop a totally different style for each film. Um, I really liked one also called Woman, um, which is from 1948, I think. It's an hour long. It has only two characters. It's about this woman who is trying to extricate herself from this kind of toxic relationship with a, with a criminal man and his attempts to sort of manipulate her into staying with him. And, but it's, it's full of incredible sort of fast editing and strange angled shots and things. So it's, it's sort of this little chamber drama that he's kind of blown up with all of these um, really sort of, visceral stylistic devices. Um, And like Wedding Ring, it has a really strong sort of female perspective. Um, You know, I think when people think of of Japanese cinema and women, they think of Mizuguchi and Naruse, um, who tend to relentlessly portray women, the victimization of women and, you know, the tragic lives of women, um, which, you know, and I love I love both of them, but um, it really was it's sort of refreshing to come upon these films that seem to portray a much more, much more agency for the female characters and, you know, women who are, are sort of defying this kind of social victimization. So all of those films, they're all, they're all available on the Criterion channel. And, you know, it's, I've been, I've been, I guess taking this opportunity when I have a bit more time to to dig into some of these deeper pockets that I've been wanting to explore and and haven't had a chance to do that. 
That's terrific. I feel like I have a whole like watching list as I was taking notes there <laughs> to see things. Um, um, David, uh, how about you? Or, or if you want to talk about one of the one of the titles that Imogen mentioned uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, once you're bitten by the Japanese bug, you stay bit, I think. I mean, when I started watching Japanese films in the 70s, I felt that it's the same thing she did, that these are really human movies. They speak to you at all kinds of levels. Since I, you know, got more and more into studying Japanese film, writing about Ozu and Mizuguchi and some others, uh, I began to realize that this really is a national cinema that doesn't that doesn't lack anything. I mean, I could live very happily with just Japanese films the rest of my life. Uh, this is, if you sort of think about it historically, maybe there are three or four really great national cinemas across the course of history. I would say American cinema is there definitely. France is there definitely. I think I have to say Japan is there too, even though comparatively they're not as well known. Uh, but the, I would just echo what uh, Imogen said. I mean, this is a national cinema that has depth at every level, at every period. Um, Shimizu, I'm very happy she's uh, pointed up the Shimizu films, which I dearly love um, from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, one of the things about the fluidity and freedom she talks about, I think is important uh, because of the industry's encouragement of it. We may not think of it this way, but there was really a great deal of uh, creative uh, license given to Japanese directors in the classic period. And even till quite very recently, uh, the producers encouraged the stylistic experimentation. They encouraged what we call the auteur theory by essentially asking directors like Ozu or Mizuguchi to, to create their own brand, their own signatures. And they were allowed to pursue these. Shimizu is an interesting case because... Shochiku, the studio, simply let him go around the Japanese countryside and make movies where he traveled. So he would go to a, a region, a town, and make up a movie and shoot it there and then ship it back. You know, this is almost unheard of in the modern uh, American industry of the period. And yet you get, as she says, all this local color, you get stars that were brought in, of course, for films like that wonderful Mr. Thank You. But uh, nevertheless, there's a lot of just regional feeling about these films and a completely free attitude towards technique, performance, mm -hmm. storytelling that is just, I think, unparalleled in most national cinemas. I'm delighted that uh, so many of these have become available from the Criterion Channel. In fact, uh, I suppose I should say this. I have a relationship with the Criterion Channel. I, Kristen, uh, I do too. <laughs> a little uh, program, I guess you'd call it, uh, every few weeks on the Criterion Channel. And I was very happy that recently the one I just put in the can is on Ozu. It's my first one on Ozu for the cycle, on um, Passing Fancy, one of my absolute favorite mm -hmm. silent movies. And I was just right in the middle of it again. I thought, oh my God, why am I wasting my time watching anything else? So <laughs> it, uh, I, I totally agree with Imogen that this is, this is a, a bounty of riches, which particularly for me at my age, I can really appreciate because the economy of scarcity that I grew up under I, I drove to Chicago to see Ozu films, you know? I mean, I went to Japan to see Ozu films. Uh, so, I, you know, the idea that you can just twist your, twist the knob and turn on the Apple TV and watch this stuff ad infinitum is so staggering. I mean, people, you know, we are very lucky. We are very, very lucky to have the Criterion Channel. Apart from my own relation with it, I would still be a massive subscriber, of course, and, and uh, gobbler up of stuff. But it's it's really incredible to have this much of the world's film treasure available so easily. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is it is incredible, and and especially now to have it without leaving the house is particularly handy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I do fear. I have to say, maybe this is something new folks want to talk about. I do fear the loss of physical media, though, because you can do things with physical media, particularly those of us who study films closely, that you can't do with streaming. Um, the pool for streaming obviously comes and goes. Something might be there and that's gone. But also the ability to freeze the frame and to look very closely at what's what's there. It's not. It's more gross, I find, when I'm streaming. You can't yeah. really find your, your attention. And, of course, there are some things that they won't uh, – the companies won't be putting out on DVD uh, because they'll think, well, it's, the market's not big enough for physical media, but we can put it on streaming. And um, I, you know, old fart that I am, I want to own it. You know what I'm saying? I want to own it. I want to be able to go somewhere and watch it on, my, on demand. Uh, so I think there's a, you know, there are pluses and minuses. We lose some things, too, with streaming. But yeah. if we keep physical media alive as well as the broader access that streaming gives for people who don't want physical media, that would be ideal. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heise's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Well, I, yeah, I do. I do admit that I'm trying to force myself first to go through my physical media, uh, oh. or at least make make headway on it. All the, in my to do pile, uh, yeah. a little bit each day, um, as well. Um, and then, yeah, there's no substitute for seeing something in in, in the theater as well. Um, uh, and and David, just the uh, same question to you as well. What's 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 a what's a film or two that you've you've um, caught up with or, or watched again in in, in recent recent weeks? Well, I have to say, I uh, I haven't watched as many classics as I'd like. So I went back. I've been I've been watching the Christian Petzold films, some of which I've seen and some of which I hadn't seen. And I have a few more of those to catch up with. I'm I'm interested in Petzold and the Berlin School at this point, just just to fill in a gap. Um, but actually, I have to say, the last film I saw in a theater before the lockdown uh, was The Invisible Man, which I thought was terrific. And and so I, I streamed it again so Kristen could watch it. Uh, and I did stream The Hunt, which I had intended to see in theater, but didn't get to. And I thought it was a pretty interesting movie, actually. So I'm using this to kind of catch up with these video on demand, you know, semi-first run releases that I would probably have gone to see uh, uh, in the multiplex. But I don't know if you two have seen those films, but uh, I, I thought I, they were pretty interesting. I'm a fan of Bloomhouse Productions generally, and I thought these were particularly interesting. I, I only saw the first one of those in the Invisible Man um, in in a in a press screening, um, which I it was also a film that I immediately thought, oh, I, I wish I'd seen this with an audience, um, yeah. because it's it's just the the indiv- the, in, the individual like set pieces and then the long kind of cat and mouse game the movie plays yeah. with your understanding yeah. of what's going on um, are all uh, quite amazing. Not not you know as well as just having Elizabeth Moss at the center of it, who is just, I mean, there's a reason that she can anchor, you know, a TV series. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested in Imogen because she and I, Imogen and I share an interest in 40s Hollywood. It it seemed to me a fascinating idea to kind of rewrite the Invisible Man scenario uh, from the standpoint of one of these women in peril plots uh, that you find in the 40s. You know, I think my husband's trying to kill me. So the log Mm -hmm. line comes 
the invisible man has a girlfriend and he's stalking her. You know, it flips the point of view around to her. It, uh, it, and then, of course, she has to turn and fight back, which is always one of the conventions of that cycle. I thought it was a really interesting sort of reinvention of that premise, the science fiction premise, but from the standpoint of the, uh, the woman, you know, who takes, a, takes on the challenge. Um, was, and again, I, I see echoes of the 40s everywhere. Imogen and I have talked about <laughs> in modern yeah. uh, And this certainly is, is a nice example, I think. Yeah. I'm sorry to say I have not caught up with that yet, um, but I was interested that you had mentioned that you were catching up on some Christian Petzold films because I, that's actually something I also have been doing. I'm um, very interested in Petzold and I was um, lucky enough to, ha to have a friend get me copies of some of his earlier films that I had not had a chance to see. I watched uh, Something to Remind Me mm -hmm. recently. Um, which is one of the films that he, I think, originally made for television in mm -hmm. the 90s. And, you know, talk about echoes from the 40s. I mean, I'm always seeing in his films echoes of um, mm -hmm. sort of classic Hollywood plots, yep. but really interestingly reimagined and, um, you know, given these interesting twists. Absolutely. I, I haven't seen that one. It's, one I'm, it's on my list. The first ones I saw, I was late coming to him. I... I saw Dry Leben, it was a Dry Leben, the uh, TV series he was part of, which I thought was quite strong. And then I went back and saw some of the other things. And last night I just watched Transit again, which mm -hmm. is interesting. But again, it's so fascinating that he not only takes this concept of a 40s, the, the, the Nazi occupation of Paris, and a 40s novel by Anna Seges, clamps it down on contemporary Paris, but then he films it in ways that echo 1940s uh, films themselves. For instance, noirish lighting and superimpositions and voiceover and things like this. So you sort of get three levels of different kinds of time frames and different kind of representation going on in the movie. I thought it was a very smart and interesting movie. I'm also a fan of and the, some of his others that I've seen, yeah. I loved Transit as well. And one of the things also that I particularly appreciate with Petzold and that again sort of links him to me, for me to, to the forties is his focus on female characters. Absolutely. And, um, you know, in films like Barbara and Phoenix, um, Yella, the way that he has these women characters who are very much not idealized um, and often kind of troubled or, or um, you know, difficult characters, but who are just given the complete attention of the movie in the way that, that you know, I associate with sort of Betty Davis movies yep. um, and that there is still, you know, not as common, I think, in, in contemporary films as we would like it to be. And not asking to be liked. They come in and Absolutely. they set the terms. I like this. And the way he can take some of the uh, melodramatic devices, like in Phoenix, like, all right, we mm -hmm. have mistaken identity, hidden identity. We've got uh, uh, metamorphosis, surgery, you know, all this stuff. And, and uh, a pistol in a handbag that doesn't go off, you know, all these things that are so primed for melodramatic and thriller treatment. And he uses them. He does get emotion and power out of them but he always deflects them a bit. His, you know, this sort of polished re remaking of genre conventions. I, I, I'm always fond of that in films, when you take a genre and spin it in a new direction. And 
I think he really does that very creatively. I'm 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 remembering now. I think uh, I think it was for Phoenix that I, I interviewed him, and uh-huh. um, and I I had just watched No Man of Her Own, the um, the bar- Stanwick. <laughs> yeah, the Barbara Stanwick, which I guess is 1950, but. Right. Yeah. And it has this incredible scene of where the kind of the, the, the event that causes the switcheroo is like a train overturning. I think it actually happens in frame that you see it like flip around from the inside. Um, and he was he was quite like entertained by by that. Um, and, and then I think I think he, he then like came back with the Lady Eve for some reason, just because he started thinking about ripping on Barbara Stanwyck. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, uh, yeah, a, a lot of fun to, to, to think about in, in terms of those, those films. In his interviews, he talks constantly about classic Hollywood, Hitchcock, thrillers of the forties, uh, De Palma, he, um, Halloween. And, and in a way in Phoenix, I was struck by in Halloween, how he took the image of the invisible man, facial bandage wrap and turns it into this very spectral scene of, uh, the protagonists are uh, hunting for her records in the hospital. I mean, it's, he's, it's not a citation exactly. He's smart enough not to actually cite a particular film, but it's more like the ambience and iconography of the genre that he's working with. I think this is smart filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this makes me think of another, another, um, uh, another line of thought with just comparing uh, the way the 1940s come to mind watching movies. I'm because I've also been just trying to just trying to place the current situation and think you you know you mentioned that you saw the hunt and and I'm thinking about what happened in the 1940s how did the 1940s cinema respond um, in such an amazing way to a, a, like a worldwide crisis. I mean it's it's if I think about it for a second it's crazy that the world was under such cataclysmic pressure at that point. And then at the same time, Hollywood was 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 putting out the, the you know these classics of of cinema and groundbreaking work uh, in in the medium. Uh, I I don't know what we can expect now. I I guess it's a much different situation since any type of gathering is 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 difficult to do in the first place, much less make a movie. But I don't know if that's if there's any is there any sort of historical analog to what's going on, or is it closer to like I don't know World War One? I? I don't know. Well, I mean, I. I'm, I'm sure David has many great thoughts about this because, you know, you've written so much about films of the 40s. But it strikes me that it's especially in the aftermath that you get this kind of incredible blossoming of creativity. I mean, I was definitely thinking about that with Japan and how extraordinarily soon after this, all you know, the country was totally devastated they were entering into their sort of golden age in terms of um, of cinema. And really they were using cinema in that moment to, to ask these questions about who are we now? And, you know, what is our relationship with the past? What is our relationship with the future? What is our relationship with our national identity? And, in, in Hollywood in the 40s, I know, I mean, we have talked in the past, um, I think, you know, maybe with both of you about the the rise of sort of ghosts in cinema and this fascination mm-hmm. with, um, with the spectral and with um, that being something that happens in the aftermath of war and, and sort of mass death and grief um, is that you get these stories about people trying to... Um, think about this, you know, the survival of 
of love in ways that can be both hopeful and and sad and and sinister in sort of um, an interesting different ways. So I feel like we're going to see this affect the movies that are people are making, not obviously right now, but a little way down the road. In any art medium, um, the artists don't, uh, don't respond directly or immediately. I, I, I'm kind of an mm-hmm. opponent of pure reflectionist view that simply says, well, what's going out there, on out there somehow gets mirrored in the artworks of a period. Because I think artists are always working with their materials and their inherited traditions and their, their film and genres and star images and all these things. So that there's a lot of stuff that comes in between, a lot of processes that filter and refract those impulses from the more broad political social activities. It's not that they don't get in, but they get in in kind of oblique ways, you know, and get in in unexpected ways or they have to fit in. I mean, think about, for instance, uh, Ghost is a good point. Um, so is Amnesia. You think about the mm-hmm. Amnesia in post-war film, or even during the, the period of the war. Uh, but actually, amnesia is a really common dramatic device in world literature and folk tales and theater and throughout all narrative media. And in fact, if you look at Hollywood films of the 20s and 30s, there's plenty of amnesia there too. But what seems to happen is that people will seize upon those artistic devices and options that are out there already circulating and then use them as a kind of response to what is there. So that stuff is always mediated and kind of distorted or twisted by the conventions of the art form itself. So I think that what will probably have, the ghost thing is also relevant. There are a lot of ghost stories, of course, before World War II, but it becomes an occasion for artists to do the kinds of things they want to do by taking, you know, iconography and themes that are already in their toolkit and repurposing them for commentary or even just entertainment. I mean, there's a sense in which I'm not sure that that people are necessarily trying to make a, a very general comment when they do these things, but often they're simply trying to say, what'll get attention? What'll get me on the others, you know, uh, over the others in competition with other, with other filmmakers. And so there's a sense, I think, that the artists are rather opportunistic and they, they try to read the zeitgeist as best they can, but it's their conception of the zeitgeist that's feeding into it, not some, real, you know, thing out there. They're already filtering it through their consciousness. Hmm. I mean, uh, the people don't vote for the movies they get. The people have to take what they're given. And the talent kind of dictates what they get. So there's a sense in which it's always refracted through the filmmakers and the institutions they they work in. And then uh, I think we can talk about these things because they're always, you know, how do you make a world war into a gangster movie? All through the night, that's one way to do it. White heat may be another way to do it. You know, there's always a sense that these other forms that are to hand get recruited for the thematic material that's floating around out there in the culture. At least that's my sense. I think it's true in Japan, too. I I tried to make the case for Ozu in my Ozu book that he's actually picking up on a lot of the social discourses of the post-war period, but then squeezing and trimming and fitting them into the genre he loves best, the home drama to play that out, the way Kurosawa was doing it with, you know, his genres and so forth. Uh, so there's a sense, I think, in which we have to have it both ways, that the, the social comment, the social impact and what's going on out there is important, but also the filmmakers are sculpting those things for ways that are powerful in their medium. Yeah. And I mean, and then it's, you know, it's interesting to think of a movie like The Hunt, which seems like a sort of a certain industrial opportunism going going on there, just that it's, it's, it is 
fairly directly trying to look at a, a current um, yeah. political framework and say, okay, how does that translate into a scenario and what's, what's, how is there a hook to that? And what Perfect. can we, did you, what did you think about it? Well, I think it's a really interesting movie. I mean, I think that actually people made a quite, quite a mistake. It's a, it's a movie that Fox viewers should love because first of all, it reminded me of some of those sort of over the top redneck movies like Billy Jack or walking tall, you know, exploitation pictures where <laughs> caricature is fine. You know, the, the meritocracy and the oligarchy are totally caricatured in this movie. It's good, dirty fun, I think. Uh, but at the same time, you think they're doing the same thing to the deplorables. But actually, it's a pro-deplorables movie, it seems to me. And it's a rather feminist movie at that. It's rather cynical at the end, I suppose. But basically, um, it's, it's a pretty harsh attack on those who think that they know better than the folks in the countryside. Uh, and it's, but it's, as I say, I think it's filtered into that most dangerous game template, you know, and uh, and spatter stuff and grim humor for sure. I mean, it's totally black humor film, and mm -hmm. all those things are kind of shaping it and twisting it. I mean, when you have somebody coming into a convenience store and the camera frames something called a can of pickled pig's lips, you know, we're not in the real world anymore, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> so I think for for me anyway that this film trying to be over the top, but is also is making a comment. Uh, and, of course, the makers are trying to position it. That's one of the striking things about modern film, that maybe classic directors like in Japan or even in Hollywood didn't uh, have the opportunity to do. They can give interviews and they can say, well, here's the way we want you to take this. The makers of the film have talked about how they want it to be, uh, you know, a sympathetic film to say, listen, listen to the other side. Whatever side you're on, listen to the other side. And all we're trying to do is humanize, you know, both sides. Nah, <laughs> they're, they're really, they're, it's, it's really a, a, a freak show, but it's, a, but it's really important <laughs> and well-made. I think technically, you know, the stylistics of it are very well-made and the performances are good. I don't know any of the actors, but I guess if you know TV, you know some of them. And mm -hmm. I thought the performances were good. It was a solid picture, very exciting, brutal, but, you know, that's American cinema. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting that that, that kind of gets us back, gets or gets me back to thinking. Like sometimes it is, it's it's good to see something kind of lurid like that and, and play those things out. And then also we were talking earlier about the the attraction of uh, humanist films, uh, films that are, are kind of regrounding you or reminding you about uh, the connections that that people have, um, which is actually something else. This is kind of just throwing a topic out there a little bit, but. Um, I, I, I'm finding that I'm responding to close-ups with more intensity right now. I, I guess that's, again, just kind of purely deprivation of the, the usual stimulus you get from just going outside and, and just be, you know, face-to-face -face with humanity. Um, but that's just something interesting. And, and uh, that's got me thinking about how close-ups you know, translate, uh, on a smaller screen and, and how they are particularly powerful when they're, they're, they're blown up and, uh, or they are their normal theatrical size, but that's just something that's been, I don't know, have either of you felt yourself responding to particular techniques more, more than, more than before? I don't know. Well, I, d I did mention, I think yeah. something about movement, you know, is, is powerful for me now because I have not, you know, the extent of my movement has been, you know, taking a walk around my neighborhood and that's been it. So I, I always have a particular love for a certain type of, of 
traveling shot, especially a kind of fluid traveling shot that that is following someone who's walking, um, which is something you get beautifully in Japanese girls at the harbor. Um, so that I always respond to, but I maybe more so now. Um, a lot of people, of course, have been talking about um, just sort of gawking at people in movies, you know, touching each other and touching things in a very, um, you know, unselfconscious way um, that how quickly within a few weeks that became something that is is striking everybody. So um, I have um, I've also in my moments where I did really want something uh, sort of of escape, you know, I don't, I don't actually like the term escapist, but I wanted something just fun and undemanding. Un, un um, I was watching some of the um, Rita Hayworth and Fred Astaire musicals, um, which also are on the Criterion channel at the moment. And um, watching people dance, I think, was also something that, that was really striking. Um, and just, I, I don't know, I guess the, just the moving aspect of moving pictures is particularly speaking to me right now. Yeah. For me, I have to say, I, I'm pretty much a technical critic. So I'm always kind of, there's one, you know, corner of my eye that's always looking for technique. And I have to say that most of the films I see, uh, I agree with, with Nick. I think that I'm struck by uh, how many different ways there are to use close-ups now. I mean, different shot scales can all count as close-up. Uh, close-ups in scope films, and why everybody's shooting scope all the time now is quite interesting to me. I don't have an answer for it, but... Uh, and how people handle the, the face. Uh, to go back to Henry Fonda in the Failsafe, I mean, there are extraordinary close-ups in that film. Shot in that old classic 19, late 50s TV style, harsh side lighting and, you know, bony lights and shadows. It's really quite striking. Um, but for me, I guess, I'm more and more impressed by the ways in which modern cinema has kind of limited its technical options. It relies too much on close-ups. Uh, it's nice, again, to see Petzold, who kind of saves his close-ups um, mm. for big moments. Uh, but generally speaking, I've been a little discouraged seeing... One of the reasons I don't watch a lot of made-for-TV TV is because I find them very formulaically filmed and that the close-up is overused and that the shot reverse shot is overused. I mean, God, you know, I'd love to see fewer shoulders in movies, really. I would really... <laughs> uh, this is kind of very standardized shooting method, multiple camera, I suppose, in many cases. Um, but then to have somebody who actually thinks it through every scene a different way, and again, goes to the 40s. You have directors who think in terms of how can I handle this in one take or how can I handle this with very few setups, uh, or how can I not repeat a setup? And this is the pain to me of modern TV is the repeated setup, but um, just those kinds of options. I'm a little more sensitive to in classic cinema now because when I do tune into TV, uh, and there are shows I like very much uh, on TV, it's just that I don't find them visually so interesting. Uh, it, when I tune into TV, I kind of wish for a little more of that creativity. Yeah, David, yeah. I, I like what you say a lot about um, films that sort of save their close-ups. And um, I've been watching uh, kind of a lot because I'm, I'm actually working on, on a commentary for it, but I've been watching the Douglas Sirk film, All I Desire with Barbara right. Stanwyck. One yeah. of my all-time favorite Stanwyck performances, and that's really saying something because yeah. she's 
she's my favorite actress and I always think she's great, but that's like a film where even for Stanwyck, she's just going so deep into what she's doing. But the, there are a, several scenes in the film that have these long close-ups and they're like arias, you know, it's like the movie is going along and then you get the aria, but it's just like two or three times in the film that you get those and they, they jump out so much. And the way that, that she handles those, those scenes where it's almost impossible to actually describe what she's doing because she's not doing anything with her face. And yet you're somehow watching her think and feel, you know, way back behind her face and it comes across so powerfully. And that is what you want from a close up. Um, but the fact that it's, it's not, the, the movie is not full of close ups makes those scenes really um, yep. stand out. And of course the ultimate example of that. Uh, just since we're, we've been on a, on a kick of talking about Japanese cinema is, is yearning the Neruse film, which leads up at the very end to what it, you know, is arguably the greatest close-up ever of Hideko Takamine in which she's, you know, in this extended close-up manages to kind of take you through the every possible, you know, every step of this sort of um, relationship and her reaction to this, um, shocked that she's just experienced and she goes through all of these different emotions without actually changing anything on her face. <laughs> and, but it's like, it's the culmination of the whole film is that close up. That's such so, an interesting point because it almost now you make me think that this is something that the Japanese directors knew among with all the other things that they knew, because you think about, for instance, the end of, uh, of uh, Mizuguchi's um, Sisters of Gion. Uh, and anyway, mm -hmm. which ends with a big close-up, or yeah. in film, uh, a film like the very end of uh, Street of Shame. I mean, the idea is the, the last shot of Street of Shame of the young girl who's been put out to be a hooker for the first night uh, is the closest we see anybody in that film. I mean, so there's a sense in which that gradation of, you know, that careful calibration of shot scale, saving them for like very precise moments of emotion is something that I think classic directors understood rather well. I would go to Hollywood too, because as you know, from your long study of Stahl, here's a guy who really saved his close-ups. I mean, this guy's norm was the two-shot, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and a prolonged two-shot at that. So, I mean, there's a sense, I think, for Hollywood directors that, um, you you know, you really didn't punch up those close-ups unless you needed to, or unless you wanted, for some purposes, like say Omer or someone like that, to, to you know, to, to spike a storyline. But basically, you kind of tried for a gradation of emphasis that would be that would play out through the whole movie, even as you say with the standwear. So, I think that whole sense of nuance and calibration nowadays is, is is uncommon. I think it's even directors I think I admire, like Tarantino and people like that, are not maybe doing this quite as much as they might. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Tarantino. I guess he he has almost as many extreme close-ups of individual objects as anything oh. else. <laughs> I kind of fetishized thing, the doorbell sort of thing. Yeah. Any any final thoughts? Actually, Imogen, I just wanted to ask since uh, David was just mentioning the last film he saw in a theater. I was curious, what was the last film that you saw in the theater? It was First Cow, um, oh. Kelly Riker, mm -hmm. which I absolutely loved and. Um, have, as you know, written about um, for Film Comment. 
that was my last uh, trip to the movies. And I am glad that I got to see that film in a theater. I mean, it's, it's very beautiful in the use of the landscape, but also very much this kind of, of a humanist movie with a very uh, intimate focus on a few characters. Um, and I've been, I guess it's been, it's been living with me a bit um, through this period. Is it streaming yet? I don't know, Nick. Do you know? That's a good question. I actually, I'm not sure that I'm not sure if that's one movie that there. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to check. I'll, I'll we'll put that information when, when we when we post that. We'll look that up. Um, I know there are a couple others that that have gone streaming, like Bakurao, which was released around the same time, um, and actually comes to mind with the hunt. Now that I think of it. Um, yeah. But first cow, I'm not sure. I I almost wonder if they'll kind of give it another push um you know later later in the year it's it's it is seems like a film that um yeah. was caught in that really uneasy moment um but, she's uh, a good filmmaker i do want to see it yeah uh, actually the last film i saw in a theatrical setting was not in a multiplex i saw the godard uh adieu a langage in 3d from dcp that's a good way to go out actually <laughs> uh, actually for having a 3d tv so that when physical media exists you can actually watch it on 3d at home Oh, we wow. can't get a play though, but uh, so yeah. it's a good farewell to me for like the big screen experience. I have to say, for sure, a, a temper only a temporary farewell. I, I, I'll say. Um, and yeah. since you mentioned Godard, I have to say maybe both of you saw this already, but I woke up this morning to a very strange thing, which was Jean Luc Godard on Instagram Live. Yeah. Um, he was doing a interview uh, with um, someone from the University of Lausanne, and it was broadcast live on Instagram with rolling comments coming across the screen in, in you know, 10 to 20 different languages. Um, a couple of them saying, why didn't you open the door for Agnès? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it is available now. I think Dave Kerr um, um, just um, shared a link to it's, it's on, I think the university's YouTube channel or something, which I can send around. Um, so yeah, you can enjoy yourself. My favorite detail is just as they're ending the, ending the interview, he lights up another cigar. <laughs> and that's it. It's the second or third of the interview. So I guess that's counterbalancing all the smoking. Right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, um, I'll, I guess we'll um, we'll end it with with that. And um, thank you both so much for for talking. It's has been really a, really a pleasure having you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. It's great talking with you both. Same here. I hope to see you too in person again soon. Yes, absolutely. We'll see you see you on the other side. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow.
Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.